Well, good morning again, and welcome to our first or our fourth installment of seven. Hear what Christ is saying to you. And uh, this week we got a letter. Uh, Jesus wrote letters to seven churches in the book of Revelation. He used John to communicate those letters, and uh, we've been going through them. And uh, we've kind of been wrestling with what would Jesus say if he sent a letter to us? What if he observed our lives? And so we're walking our way through that. It's great to have those joining us online. I think of Kurt. And the other day I met someone that I didn't even know who joins us uh, fairly regularly. And uh, that was just fantastic. So we love our online community. So, so far we've talked about basically uh, three things or four things because we had an introduction week. Uh, We tend to miss the obvious when we focus on the obscure. And sometimes when we're looking at prophecy, we get into a book like Revelation and some of the Older Testament prophecies, and we can just get caught up with what, who, where, when's it going to happen, and all of those kinds of things. And what happens is all of a sudden we focus on the obscure rather than the obvious. say this a lot of times. Uh, Mark Twain used to say, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts of the Bible that I do understand that bother me. Because now he's responsible to integrate those into his life. And we can do that. We can overdo that when we're looking at prophecy. Also, we saw our older faith doesn't have to become colder faith. And some of us who have been, uh, who said yes to Christ years ago, and uh, it can grow cold if we're not careful. And we really need to focus in on putting the energy into our relationship with God so it doesn't grow cold. Same thing with relationships with friends. And obviously, we could talk about your relationship with your spouse, if you're married, that uh, it's easy when it's been some time. It can grow cold, and and we don't want to have that happen. We want to keep it warm, not just colder because we're older. And then last week, we looked at a couple quotes from Corey Ten Boone as we rounded up the message on Smyrna, a church that was uh, being persecuted, that was suffering. And uh, I came across this one thought. This wasn't in your notes last night. Uh, We can be at our best even when life is at its worst. And when I thought about that, I thought about that also in the fact that we can apply it to uh, our world. We can be at our best even when our world is at its worst. It gives us an opportunity to point to Christ in a powerful way. So these days of uncertainty, these days of concern, this is a moment where the light of Jesus can shine brightly. Uh, We've been looking again at these seven churches, and we see them in um, Asia, and uh, basically in modern-day Turkey today. You can see Italy there, and zooming in on them a little bit closer, uh, you can see we're kind of going around in a horseshoe. So we started with Ephesus. Uh, Patmos is where John is writing these letters from. He's in his um, early 90s. He's been banished to Patmos because of his faith. And basically, he is breaking rocks. And in all of that, uh, he spends time with the Lord on a Sunday. If you saw the first message, we're here. And that's where God, Christ, gives him these revelations. And he's sharing them with the church almost 2,000 years ago. And they have application for us today. Again, as we think about uh, these letters and we think about Jesus and we think about the way he interacts, he says he's in the midst of these churches. And all of us, probably most of us have seen the TV show Undercover Boss, and we see how the boss, the CEO, slides into whatever company that is and just kind of pretends he's a regular day employee and how the fact that that just doesn't usually go well 
And so we have to ask ourselves, what would happen? What would happen if Jesus was undercover boss in our church? What would happen if Jesus was undercover boss as we're walking to our cars and we're saying encouraging things and we're saying not so encouraging things? What would undercover boss Jesus say if he was in one of the ministries we were doing and uh, we were just frustrated or we wake up and go, oh, man, tonight's Awana, tonight's youth group. And what would he say if he heard what we said under our breath? And that's not to make us feel guilty. It's to make us realize that Jesus is observing our lives. He's up and close and personal in our lives. He knows what's going on. He knows what's going on in the life of the church. And these seven churches, we have seven candlesticks representing them. Uh, Jesus talks about that. And he says that if you don't sharpen up, if you don't come along in these things, uh, you will no longer exist. And in one of our messages, we talked about how the fact that there are no permanent churches And we really understand that as we drive around our county, our area, we see churches that used to be, in theory, vibrant churches. And they're either empty or they're being used for some other purpose. And it's not because they moved into a bigger building. They just just stopped existing. And so that is a real possibility. And when I think about life in this county, maybe 45, 50 years ago, there was a group of people that said, wow, there needs to be a candlestick. There needs to be a light right here in Romulus. And aren't we thankful that that group of people did that? But that's not guaranteed. Uh, This can go away very quickly if you and I aren't walking right with Christ and expressing that in our lives. Well, this morning we're talking about the compromising church, not a very pleasant Uh, subject to talk about Uh, maybe uh, the suffering church is a little easier because we can all see ourselves in this idea of compromise and the idea of compromise of having one foot in faith following christ and the other foot somewhere else and that creates a great amount of danger for you and i when we have one foot on one thing and one foot on the other and they're moving and sometimes uh they separate I've had my ups and downs, my fair share of bumpy roads and heavy winds. It's a profession. I can't be an engineer because science alone is physics. I'm a non-stop gymnastic. Now I sped it up because it took forever. And I did add the screaming because I thought that was more realistic. Because he should be screaming because it hurts. And he's scared to death. But he's too cool for that, so he's not scared and all that kind of thing. But having one foot on one thing and another foot on another thing is dangerous. Is dangerous. And good old Claude didn't want to be outdone by Chuck Norris, so we have this one real quick. because I didn't want to be outdone by either of the guys. No, that's not happening. (laughs) Not happening. (laughs) Then you would hear screaming and need to call an ambulance. But anyway, so when you think about compromise, it is dangerous. This isn't to slap our hands. It's hard to live a compromised life in any area. 
just think of something else that maybe is not faith, that probably expresses faith, and you're trying to be solid in that area, but there's this other area that, that isn't really compatible, and you're compromised, and it is dangerous. It's dangerous for our faith, not that we can lose our faith. We believe that if you said yes to Christ, you're adopted into his family. That's a permanent thing. Yes, you and I can wander. You and I can go off the rails. But once you've said yes to Christ, if you've truly, genuinely said yes to Christ, you join his family and you're part of his family permanently. But there are times where we can go off the rails, where we can compromise. And really what we're going to see is what happens when a compromising church crashes into conviction-filled Christ. What happens? Christ has convictions. Christ has standards. They're not guidelines. They're not fuzzy things. He has no, yes, black and white, pretty clear things. And when we use the word church, you need to remember that church really should have been translated assembly our Assembly of God friends got their name a little bit better because you've got the Assembly of God Church in Geneva. It's Assembly of Those Who Are Following Christ. The word church really leans more into the idea of building, establishment, all those kinds of things. And uh, so that, that really doesn't serve an expression of who we are in the original language. It's assembly. And so when a compromising assembly, local assembly of Christ followers, crashes into a conviction-filled Christ, what happens? So let's read through that passage, and we'll make some comments. To the church of the church at Pergam, write these. These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword, whose words pierce the hearts of men and women i know where you live where satan has his throne yet you remain true to my name you didn't deny your faith in me even in the days of my faithful martyr antipas who was executed in your city where satan lives nevertheless i have a few things against you there are some among you who hold to the teaching of balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nickelodeons. Not like Nickelodeon TV, it's Nickelodeon. Repent, therefore, Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To those who overcome, I will let him feast on the hidden manna and give him a shiny white stone. And right upon the white stone is inscribed his new name known only to the one who receives it. So let's talk about uh, living on the fence. What happens? What happens to a local church that lives on the fence? Uh, Got to remember about this church. Uh, it, it was, uh, you know, a Roman uh, city. Uh, 
lots of gods celebrated all of that. The emperor worship was going on big time there. Uh, it was very successful. It was, uh, they had a library there with over 200,000 volumes, a uh, big amphitheater. This was a happening city, uh, 100,000 more people living there. And so when you and I think about living on the fence and we think about this passage from the book of Revelation, uh, the first thing we need to ask ourselves is what about fuel and compromise? What are the things that like pour gas on the fire? What are the things that fuel compromise in our life? Again, Jesus very clearly says, I know where you live, where Satan lives. I mean, he has a, he has a footprint there. His throne is there. Yet you remain true to my name. It's culturally set against being a Christ follower. And uh, Jesus is warning them about not fueling the fire of that. It's really hard. How can you be in the world but not of the world? That, that's a tension you and I experience all the time. There's a tipping point there. Where, which side are we leaning to? Which side back and forth? And then what makes it more difficult is it's different, a little bit different for each person. So you can't like look at another person's life completely and say, oh, they're okay with that, so I guess I can be okay with that. They're not okay with that, I shouldn't be okay with it. There's, a, there's, a, there's, some, there's some gray area, and there's this idea that you and I should walk closely with the Holy Spirit, with God in our lives, and so there's a, there's a little bit of gray area in there. It isn't all right or wrong. And uh, sometimes for some of us, it's really hard when we have a, uh, a um, conviction and somebody else doesn't have that conviction or vice versa. We don't have that conviction. They have that conviction. Remember when the girls were really young, explaining to them that there are some things the Spencers do that other church families don't do. And then there's some things that the Spencers don't do that other church families do. And here's the deal. You and I are not to prescribe our convictions on somebody else. Commandment, that's a different story. But convictions, matters of conscience, that, that, that's, uh, that's, that's in the individual believer. There is differences that. It, difference with the way what's entertaining, what isn't entertaining. Different with what you watch, what you don't watch. Infinite difference with how you spend your money. Some of us would never spend our money on that. What a waste. That's a, that's a bad. Some of us would. Some of us, it just goes back and forth. Those are matters, really, matters of conscience. And so girls, it can be hard, but you cannot size somebody up for areas that are matters of their conscience. That's being judgmental. That's being self-righteous. That's all those kinds of things. And what's funny is most of us as Christians don't get messed up on commandments. Those are pretty clear. Don't always get messed up on convictions, but matters of conscience. That's a really tough one. I think we just got to be aware of that. So, again, this is a hard process. We don't want to be fueling compromise in our lives and fueling compromise in others. And Jesus realizes this is so hard. Here's a mock-up of one of the temples there, and they called that Satan's uh, throne because he could, like, sit on it. You see how it almost could be like a chair? And so that's what they called this. So when we're trying not to put fuel on the fire, uh, Jesus also has these words for us. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. 
And a first that uh, is fearful, but I would like you to think of that really being more like a scalpel. A scalpel in the hand of a doctor is not a weapon. It's a saving device. It's a saving device. The sword in the hand or the mouth of Jesus isn't a weapon in our lives. It's a saving device. It's something that protects us. In Hebrews we read, God's word is alive and working. It's sharper than the sharpest sword and cuts all the way into us. It cuts deep to the place where the soul and the spirit are joined. It judges thoughts and feelings in our hearts. And if we're honest, the first time we read that, we feel defensive. Defensive. But actually, we should welcome it. Because in the hand of the master, in the hand of the master, he gives us clarity. He helps us to see what it is. He helps us to see uh, where our hearts are confused, where our hearts are selfish, where our hearts need to be. And in his hands, he does the surgery that each one of us needs. So we ought to welcome it. If you want to make sure that you're not putting fuel on the fire, fueling compromise, regularly you need to go to the surgeon and let him do his work. And sometimes that's just a, a little, you know, little touch here and there. Sometimes it's major surgery and not very comfortable healing turnaround time. Some of us who've had surgery know that. It just takes a while, not instantaneous healing, uh, but, but, but it's a good thing. On the other side of that surgery, when it's done right, we are in a better place physically. The same is true when you and I let the master do his surgery on our hearts. We're in a better place spiritually, the way we live our lives. So that, that obviously would mean that you and I need regular exposure to God's word. It's so basic, but it's so lacking. So basic, but it's so lacking. Uh, not to embarrass anyone, but just to have you thinking about this. Uh, you know, in the last you know, three weeks, have you spent time with God? I mean, real time, uh, you know, with him, you know, Ten times. Has that happened? Because if you want the surgeon at work in you, you've got to go to the hospital a few weeks. You've got to go to the doctors, and you've got to let him do his work. Sometimes there's things we avoid because we don't want to deal with it. I've told you in past messages, and this broke for some of you, I said, I have some of the most beautiful feet. But I have a little, like, bump on the bottom of my foot that's been driving me nuts for six or eight weeks. So finally, I called the doctor in, like, a week and a half. I'm going to go in and let him do whatever he needs to do. But I can't complain about it anymore. It seems like, like stuff looks good. Oh, that's what it really is. The doctor, not hurting too bad today, so I think I'm going to let it go. And that same thing happens to us, right? This issue in our life's not hurting us too bad, so we keep progressing, and we keep the doctor at arm's length. How are you putting fire, a fire, a fuel on the fire when it comes to compromise? 
forsaking compromise. Verse 13, yet you remain true to my name. Some of us are kind of surprised when we get to the point where he goes, this has got to be work on me. You remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. So there's actually an individual who would not renounce his faith. And some of the process of this faith is that you would have to take a little incense and throw it in this fire, and that was emperor worship. And you need to do that every once in a while. Some people said it was like a once-a-year event. Some people said you need to go there once a week. But uh, he would not do it, which is kind of not pleasant to think about. But the way they took him out is they put him in a calf, a metal calf, with a little vent at the mouth so when he screamed, they could hear him screaming, and they lit a fire under it. And you can look at this, but that's the way he went out. I don't even like looking at that, so get off that. But that's that, that happened, and they still stayed true. It's not like they go, uh-oh, that happened to Antipas. We know Antipas. Antipas was eating dinner one night, and uh, all of a sudden they came in, some Roman guards, and off he went, and that could happen to me. I'm, I'm, I'm all, you know, I, I'm going to... Keep my fingers crossed when I say, you know, no, I don't believe in Jesus, but my fingers are crossed, you know, you know the kind of thing. What? You, you know, forget? No, they stayed true. It's interesting when, when persecution, suffering doesn't work, it seems that the next thing on the list from the evil one is compromise. If you can't get us to move and change our ways because... The suffering is too intense. It takes a whole nother time. I'll make things nice and give you opportunities to compromise. Compromise in the lighter things that will never lead to conviction in the weightier things. You see, sometimes we think that's the way it works, that if you know these little things really don't matter and it's not going to affect the weightier things. But it seems to do that. It seems to do that. The, the, the lighter things kind of build up some momentum for the larger things. Some of us have friends, and again, not from a judgmental way, but we're just from an observation way. We saw them start to go down one path, little by little by little, and all of a sudden became more and more and more. The farther they went, the more things changed. The weightier things got into their lives. Uh, it uh, got hard. It's interesting. Uh, Thomas or Tom Rainer writes about a new phenomenon that's going in and going across the churches in the United States right now. And I'm just going to give you some highlights from it. He calls uh, these uh, people goners. He called these dropouts goners because they were once, once one of your best church members. Now they're gone. And uh, he says here are five uh, realities or five keys that happen. First of all, there's a lower commitment in key roles, and goners begin their dropout journey by attending small groups less frequently, by attending uh, meetings less, uh, by just backing off. And the next thing is less frequent worship attendance. And all of a sudden, you know, it's three times a month, now it's two times a month, now it's once a month. Then it's resigning key positions, and stage three 
The governor stepped down from key positions such as teaching, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They state reasons that are typically family reasons or personal, and they would keep the reasons vague lest someone suspect they are simply less committed to a bright service. And he talks about fourth stage, reduces or stops giving. When the goner gets to this stage, he or she is almost gone. Most pastors don't have access to financial records. This is the case in our church, so they don't see this stage. And he has some ideas about that. And then stage number five is leaves for good reasons. And he has in parentheses, not really a good reason. Um, they, have, uh, they have all these kinds of things and uh, just continue. They just are not into the mission of the church anymore. Uh, they're not being fed. Uh, this and that, uh, you know, not adequate, whatever. And uh, he talks about how this is painful, and this really is painful for pastors. Talk about that a little bit. And then he has this line, by the way, most of the goners never find another church that meets their perceived needs. They are gone from any commitment to a local church. And uh, you may know some folks like that. You may have been that kind of folks in the past. But again, that's this whole idea of, thinking about compromise and moving into that area and starting off with the right thing so if we're going to forsake it. We read this, Romans 12, 2, and I do have these out of order on purpose. So I'm going to go, wait a minute, now he's going to read Romans 12, 1. I did it on purpose this time. Sometimes not. Uh, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Conform to the world. Doesn't say not to be in it, but don't be conformed by it. And I tell you, that's harder. We have we have faithful friends that in their way to deal with this is they just shut the world out. Sometimes we joke about having a holy huddle, and they're just in their own little bubble and they're not out there. And then there's the other extreme. And so it's, 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 a, it's a fine dance when you walk through this. Transformed by the renewing of your mind, exposure to God's word, personally, corporately, when we get together. Then you'll be able to test. Then you'll be able to figure out things. Uh, this time of year, sometimes I have college or high school students come to me and try to figure out what their next step is in life. And I'll ask them, where's your walk with God? And a lot of them will say, well... Uh, it's not really happening. And I said, well, well, we can, we can, God, God's gracious, he'll help you, but it would be a lot easier to figure these things out if you had been walking with God, or at least over the last six months, because now you're starting this whole process kind of just, just disconnected. You don't know what his heartbeat is the same way. You might know it intellectually, but heart-wise, you don't know it because you haven't been close to him. So how can you make good decisions? Uh, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, we don't really have big church business meetings, but in a daring moment, I never did this. I would have loved to have done this. I would have said, anyone who wants to vote, who can vote, stand up, okay? Anyone who has not spent time with God at least four times in the last week needs to sit down. And it would be interesting to see how many of us would really be eligible to vote because have we been spending time with him? How many have you just clicking it off our list? How many of you have really been engaged with it? It's just kind of interesting, you know, we're making decisions from best business practices or personal just preferences, not from a growing relationship with God. And 
that's disastrous. Again, this is dangerous. Making a decision about buying a home, buying a car, moving, job, all these kinds of things, daily little things removed from God as a Christian, that, that's, that's dangerous. That, it's like being on those two slides. And none of us are a Claude Van Damme, and none of us are Chuck Norris, that's for sure. So, verse 1 out of the message says it this way. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, your eating, your going to work, walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Can, can we really say we do that? Jesus takes all of our lives. Is all of our life an offering? Is only Sunday, quote-unquote, worship? Or a couple moments in the Bible, only worship? Or is all of your life, the way you drive, the way you mow your lawn, the way you interact with your kids, your parents, is, it, is, are you, is that a part of your worship, showing that you value what God thinks, you value God's convictions, you value what Christ values. And so it, it, it shows up in even how you eat, how you spend, all those kinds of things. Your everyday life, your life, whatever that is, whatever's made up, your TV watching, how much sleep you're getting, how much video games you're playing, face all that stuff, laying it before Jesus as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. So he has made it possible that you can live a life in all those components, the everyday life possible that honors him. And when you do that, he is delighted. He came not so that you fill a seat on a Sunday morning. He came so that our lives would be transformed from the inside and out and would be reflected in all the things we do. And that's a process. It's not just a a switch you, you flip it's a process so that, and that's okay but are you going in that direction of putting your life before him am i putting my life before him in what i do and i, I tell you i'm a fellow sure sure a fellow traveler with you i don't have it all together i'm i'm trying to learn this step by step by step and there's some weeks where i take two steps forward and then the next week i step take a step back, but I'm hoping and praying and hopeful that when a whole year is gone, I've moved farther than just stayed in one spot or a lost step. So fostering compromise, you know, how did they foster it? How do you know, they, they fueled it, but how did they foster it? We see this in the next verses where they talk about Balaam and Balak, and you have to go to the Older Testament to figure that out, and we'll just talk about that in a moment. He's got the people not to, 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 to kind of join their thing, uh, to eat food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual morality. That was a part of their worship. Um, likewise, also, you have to hold on to the teachings of the Nicolodians and their, their, their current. So back in Numbers, if you remember, um, Balak tried to get Balaam to curse Israel. They'd go up to these mountains uh, and look down and see the Israelites. And, and uh, you know, Balaam would have to do what God said, even though he really wasn't a God follower. And every time he got ready to curse them, he would kind of put a blessing on them. And it obviously was king that wanted to curse him because he was so scared of what he was going to do with, you know, why'd you do that? You know, and finally, I think it's three times, maybe four times he does this and just never curses him. And, uh, you know, the king says, well, you're not getting any payment from me for doing this. Uh, but then Balaam has another idea 
try to connect with them, try to entice them, try to get them to kind of like join with you. And, and that succeeds us. They basically compromise because the cursing wasn't working, but the compromise did. And then when you think of their current issues, this idea is relating to the view that Christians are released by grace from obligation of observing moral law. I can't even pronounce that inky number, whatever that is, but uh, that's what it means, relating to the view that Christians are released by grace from the obligation of observing moral law. And uh, it's not that our God isn't gracious, he loves us, but, but that doesn't give you and I pass. Sometimes you and I show contempt for God's grace because we overuse it or take it for granted or oh god will forgive me so it's not a big deal this one time one time turns into a rhythm of life whatever it might be and uh, we feel released from that i shared with this before my father uh, said that his uh, mother ruined his college experience by saying there's only one rule bill or billy as she would call him there's only one rule billy and that is just realize that jesus is with you everywhere you go and as long as we're okay with that we're all set and he's like, thanks a lot. That just ruined college, ruined the military, ruined everything. If I'm thinking Jesus is with me everywhere I go. We somehow think we're released from that. We think God's grace gives us a pass, but it doesn't. And it's not because he's trying to put us down, hurt us. He wants us to experience full life. And full life means observing these moral laws he has for us. It's better. Uh, those of us who have been married, uh, for a while, know that our marriage is better if we've been faithful. It's just a better marriage. That shouldn't take anything away. You can say, well, you know, man, I didn't have these experiences with these other people. No, no, your marriage is better. It's actually better. And some of us who have, you know, crossed that line uh, uh, regret it. It wasn't what it was cracked up to be. It created tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. If we could go back and not do that, we would have not done that. See, those moral laws, all those ideas are not just uh, old-fashioned things. They're things that bring solid goodness into our lives. Okay, I've got to move along a little bit here. Um, fleeing compromise. The whole idea of repentance is fleeing. You stop moving in that direction. Mentally, you say, that's not good. Or that is good, and you change the direction of your life. You stop walking that way, and you start walking this way. And I, I'll be, you know, it doesn't have to be a big emotional thing. You don't have to be all emotionally heartbroken. You have to say, you know, walking that way is not a good idea. It's going to bring this into my life, this into my this life. So I'm going to walk this way. I'm repenting. I'm just not sorry I'm changing actions. I've told you this before. We trained the girls to say, I'm sorry, all the time. And then one day it dawned on us, they said sorry just to get us off their back. So the minute they were caught, sorry, 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 sorry. And they thought, oh, now everything's okay. We're like, don't say sorry unless you don't, unless you mean it. So then we had to explain what meaning that meant. But the same way with God. Sometimes we're sorry, but we really don't mean it. We're sorry for what it's gotten us into but we're not sorry for what we're doing we have to change our thoughts about it joseph great example 
of someone who flees from God. Challenge you, read the story. You have the references there, Genesis 9, 11 through 12. The story's bigger than that. He has some, he has a, probably a beautiful uh, wife of the person in charge of the estate, the captain of the guard, and she's after him day in, day and night, and finally she gets him in a situation where it seems like it's impossible that he's not going to compromise, even though this kind of thing probably went on all the time in these kind of places. He wasn't going to do that. He wasn't going to sin against his master. He was probably kind of his friend, even though his master wasn't going to do that. He wasn't going to sin against God, and he runs the other way. He, he, he repents, in a sense. He turns. He owns it. That's the way he functions now. He changes his mind on that. I'm sure, being a young man, that was really difficult for him to say no. Can you imagine? I mean, just on and on. Well, my master's wife made. I, I mean, he, he says no. And he doesn't say no because he just all of a sudden pulls this thing out, this principle. I, I think he's walking with God all the time. So he has the strength to say no. Again, you and I, if we want to repent, if we want to make changes in our life, we just can't. Sunday morning is way not enough. Devotions once a week is way not enough. Quiet time with God. You need to be regularly in it. I'm even going to propose sometimes you need to be into it a couple times a day. Oh, no, mercy me, that's way too much. All I know is when I was really chasing Cindy, I couldn't wait to see her. We worked at this camp, and I'd come up with excuses to go over to the girls' side of the camp. I'd run out of newspaper because I was the arts and crafts guy. That shows you how desperate they were, me, arts and crafts. I was the arts and crafts guy, and I purposely wouldn't take enough newspaper, so I'd have to go back over to get some. Oh, ran out of newspaper. The kids were really messy today. Oh, hi, Cindy. La, 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 la. You know, sick, but I couldn't wait. I looked for ways. I manufactured ways. And you, when you were in love, and hopefully you're still in love, you manufacture ways to be with your spouse. Because you manufacture ways to be with your spouse. All right, you get the point. Repent, change, grow. Talked to, I've talked about this before, um, about repentance. Uh, there's two forms of repentance in the scripture. Uh, there's one that uh, looks like repentance but really isn't repentance. I liken it to coffee. And, uh, you know, there's like decaf coffee. You know, it smells like coffee, sometimes tastes like coffee, but isn't regular coffee. And uh, there's a difference there, decaf, regular. And uh, sometimes our repentance is decaf repentance. Our heart isn't involved. In the King James Version, when it talks about Judas and when he betrayed Jesus and was all upset, it says he repented. It uses that word. That's the repentance without a change of heart. That's being sorry because you got caught, sorry because of the consequences, but that's not really being sorry as in I agree with that. I'm going to change my ways. My behavior is actually going to change. It's going to be different. May not be perfect. I may not get it right all the time, but I'm moving in that direction. Judas repented. It didn't. It didn't count. Peter denies Christ. Not as bad as Judas, but in still in the same. I don't know. Pretty bad. Three times does all this stuff, and he repents, and he's accepted. Look into the Old Testament, guys. 
these kings, crazy stuff. They repent. Some really repent, and there's a change. No matter who you are, no matter how bad you have sinned, no matter what you've done, when you and I repent, God accepts us. That's the grace that we, in a sense, don't want to hold in, in contempt because we just don't do anything with it. The decaffeinated repentance is even the Greek word there, conveys a change of mind such as to produce regret or even remorse on the account of sin, but not necessarily a change of heart. Real repentance has a change of heart. And the change of heart affects the way you start to live, the way I live. I repent of eating two or three bowls of ice cream at one sitting. The next time I only eat one bowl. And I don't stuff three bowls of ice cream into one bowl. I only eat one bowl. Because we can play the game, can't we? And you can pick a something else besides ice cream, right? Okay, ice cream's actually very good for your heart. So So decaffeinated versus repentance. Jesus talked about cleaning the inside of the cup, not just the outside. None of us like getting a cup out of the dishwasher that's clean on the outside but that's just on the inside. You start drinking it and all of a sudden you either see something or all of a sudden something is in your mouth that shouldn't be in the liquid and you're like, ah, you're like, you know, because you want the, you could, you could care less if the outside of the cup wasn't clean, the inside's got to be clean. I even got this little water jug thing and it's got this little special thing that covers over it one more layer so you don't get any gook on like where you drink out of it because you don't want stuff on the inside. You don't want, on the outside, who cares? Inside, you do care. Jesus talks about the same idea. Free of compromise. Free of compromise. I, I may be overplaying this, but you and I can, in a sense, be free of moving in the direction of compromise. We actually listen. Whoever has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the groups of Christians, the local groups, the local assembly. To the one who is victorious, I will give three things. I'll give them hidden manna, I'll give the person a white stone with a new name written on it. Those are two known only to that person. Very quickly, talking about manna. Old Testament, it's what got the Israels through. Manna was a major staple to their survival physically. There was refreshment. There was satisfaction. It was inexhaustible. It was always there for them. The manna of God. That's why you and I meet someone who has like a bounce in their step. Because they're like eating the manna of God. They have energy, spiritual energy. That sounds a little weird, but they just have, there's just something about them. It's because they are actually refreshed and satisfied with God himself. They go away from their quiet time. Maybe their heart's a little seared a little bit, but they walk away pumped and ready to go. Doesn't happen to me every day, but I love when I read something and it just speaks to where my soul and heart is at, and that is no accident. I'm 
OCD, I can tell you what I'm going to be doing for my devotions seven months from now, probably ten years. I can tell you what passage I'll be in that I keep reading through. So, so when it all lines up and it speaks to that moment, that's not an accident. Anytime God's word touches my heart, that is God alive and well because I don't know about, well, probably not you, but I am a sinful human being. I am not pro leaning towards God. I would rather go the other direction. So whenever it stirs in my heart, that can't be Dave Spencer. That's got to be God showing up. No one else could do that. I mean, I joke that if I wasn't a pastor, I wasn't a Christ follower, I'd probably be like a bouncer. You know, like one of these guys who did one of these Enron schemes. Or you're going to like, oh, no, Dave's a terrible guy. You know, why not, right? Hey, let's get all you can. Jesus changes the bent of a heart. It ought to, he ought to, taste and see that the Lord is good. I've got a lot of little verses listed there. You can look them up on your own. I'm going to kind of end with this. Well, I'll get to the two other ones real quick, but uh, just this story. I've, I think I've mentioned this guy, Reynard, before. He was a king, uh, and his brother Edward was the prince, and his brother Edward wanted to be the one in charge, so he took over the kingdom, and as you can say, Reynard liked to eat. He liked his ice cream. And so Edward didn't kill him because he was his brother, but he made this prison inside the castle. And uh, he put basically a, uh, built this room, had this room built, and the door was only big enough for someone not that big to get through. And he said, Reynard, you're free to take over the kingdom anytime you want. You just got to walk through that door. Any of the subjects would say, hey, that's terrible. This is your brother. He should be like, my brother can get out. There's an open door. It's not locked. He can get out. But Reynard was a good-sized boy. And also, Edward was smart. He sent him delicacies like every day like because he wanted to keep them that size. And Reynard went along with it. Ten years later, Edward's killed in a battle. They let Reynard out. And uh, they had to probably break the walls down. It wasn't because he wasn't eating and he didn't go on a diet. And uh, he only lasted a few years because his health was so bad. What things in your life, what things in my life are keeping us prisoners? The door is open. The door is open. But our appetite keeps us a prisoner. What kind of things are you satisfied? When you're satisfied for the manna of God, when you go after it, you don't find yourself getting into these other things that make you a prisoner of whatever God is. White stone is very interesting. In Roman days, uh, there's a couple options for this. Uh, sometimes a, a jury would have a black stone and a white stone. And if you were free, they'd do the white stone. And yeah, yeah, you know, I'm not, I'm not guilty. So that there's this idea going there. No one knows exactly which one it fits. Also is access. If you were going like to a, a, a concert, you know, uh, and uh, you, you were, had your ticket, it was this kind of like white stone with something stamped on it. So you get to this little ticket place and you're like, oh, I got you. Yep, yep, you're in. And, um, and also, again, just the idea of, um, you know, access, uh, a place to be prepared for. So when you and I move in the direction of not being a compromiser, we find we have that manna that satisfies us. We also find we have this white stone, guiltless, Christ has covered our sins, 
We have access to him all the time, and he's also got a place prepared for us. And that is fantastic. Last one, new name, the idea of identity and intimacy. That changes. God knows us inside and out. I've got this written down. I read this almost every three days. It's a key deep passage. In Christ is who we find out who we are, what we're living for. Long before we first heard of Christ and got our hopes up, he had his eye on us, had designs on us for glorious living. Part of the overall purpose he is working out in everything and every one. Whenever I forget who I am, what I'm supposed to be about, I remember that I find out who I am in Christ. He gives me my focus. He gives me my direction. All of us. And that interferes with compromising. I need this. That's what I'm living for. It's not for what somebody else tells me I'm living for. It's what he tells me. I'm not, I'm not getting tied up. I'm not watching commercials on TV and they, they're trying to entice me and this is what I what should be about. Even my entertainment, I make sure that entertainment is not kind of creating an appetite for something that shouldn't be a part of my life because my meaning comes from Christ. Now again, I don't do this perfectly, but this is the direction we ought to be moving in. And then we find ourselves fitting in to the purpose that he's working out in us. So, in Christ, I can let go of all I have. Open hands. Laying it all on the altar, as some may say. Because in Christ, I have everything, or I have all that I need. All that I need. And so all the other stuff, all the compromising stuff is around the edges. It's over here. And my focus is Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we just thank you. We thank you that Jesus did undercover boss in churches. We thank you that he did it in other churches. We don't really like him doing it in our church, in our life, but we're thankful that he is undercover. We thank you that in tandem, in concert with his Holy Spirit, your Holy Spirit, he works on our hearts. And if there's anyone here today that's never really said yes to you, Pray that in this moment they would. They wouldn't leave this place just knowing about you, but they would know you. And for those of us who do know you, some of us, the minute I said compromise, we knew. We know. Some of us may have to dig a little bit. But Father, help us to stay off the road of compromise. Not just for ourselves, but we don't want the candle, the light of this place go out. We ask all of this in Jesus' wonderful name.